last been about nine months that we started lessons we have learned in the wilderness or wilderness lessons in the wilderness. I said, had I known what we were going to walk through with Pastor Rick getting sick, I think I would have picked something else to teach on, like maybe all the happy things God does for us or uh, in the promised land. (laughs) But um, just take a minute and just what comes to your mind, things that you have learned the last nine months in this study. Yeah, just speak them out, Teresa. Oh, I like that. Just because you're in the wilderness doesn't mean you're alone. Wow. How many have found that is profound? How many have found that to be true? How many have found it to be true that when you're in the wilderness, the enemy tries to keep you isolated? How many found that? Yeah. Okay. That's a good one. Someone else. What are some things? Yes, Kim. It is a blessing, okay? It's not easy, but it is a blessing. It produces something, okay? Someone else? Yes. We're saved by grace, okay? Someone else. What are some things we learn in those wilderness experiences? Obedience is better than sacrifice, yes. That's a good one. Yes, Faith. Amen. Cloud by a cloud by day and a fire by night. Yes, Gia. So important. He cares more about the journey than the destination. Yeah. You know what I have found is that the when we're in the wilderness, the battle belongs to him. Every stage of our life, no matter what our stage, the battle belongs to the Lord, doesn't it? He does the fighting for us. Um, just really quick, as you see at your table, uh, Bob Hunt, Foursquare Missions Press, donated these to the women's ministries. This book, each one of you, it's called The Dinner Party. And um, it is an invitation to salvation. And so he asked, he said, I'd like to give, Bob wrote this. It is well written. He is a very good writer. And he um he wanted us to have these, so make sure and thank Bob when you see him. But they're not really just for us to keep. I want you to read it, and then I want you to find somebody to share it with that you want to come to Christ or you want to walk, uh, see them walk away from shame or guilt. This book is really good. So read it and pass it on, and when you get a chance, thank Bob. So open our Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 7. Deuteronomy 2, 7. And I'm going to be reading from the New Living Testament. This was our memory verse. For the Lord your God has blessed you in all the work of your hand. He knows you're trudging through this great wilderness. These 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. I love this, and it says that the Lord has blessed you in all the work. Circle that word, in all the work of your hand. The Lord has blessed you in all the work of your hand. I remember when the kids were younger, and I was homeschooling, and uh, you you get to feeling sometimes, am I making a difference? So I, I got these stacked drawers, and every piece of paper that they did, 
I started filing them. You know, if it was English, whatever, every worksheet, everything. And over a period of time, I could go back and reflect that this is all the work they had done. It, it encouraged me. And in a sense, I believe sometimes we, we don't see that God sees all the work of our hand. Nothing goes unnoticed by God. Not one diaper, not one dirty sink of dishes that you did or, you know, whatever. God doesn't forget. Every time you forgave your husband when you knew that he didn't deserve <laughs> it or every time, you know, you had extra patience with a neighbor or whatever, God does not forget those times you get up and you come to church and you teach Sunday school or you drive a, a neighbor to the doctor's office or, you know, you, whatever it is, God sees, it says right here, he has blessed you in all the work of your hand and he knows, he sees, God sees and he knows you trudging through this great wilderness. Isn't that what parenting feels like? Trudging? You know, sometimes parenting felt like this. Cindy, when she was little, she used to always like to wear rain boots, even in the summer. She would wear a rain boots and a rain jacket to Walmart. It didn't matter. It could be 100 degrees. And I just found it was just better to let her wear them. It was much less of a battle. But sometimes I felt like her. I felt like I had rain boots on and I was going through mud. Do you ever feel that way in life sometimes? You're drudging. That's what drudging looks like to me. And um, this great wilderness, he calls it this great wilderness. I don't think it's great in the sense of us saying, oh, this is like Disneyland great. It's just great to us. It's a burden. But God understands that. He understands whatever we're drudging through, no matter how many years, he is with us and he's never going to leave us. And it says, these 40 years, the Lord your God has been with you, and you have lacked nothing. So as we walk through this teaching the last nine months, we've all come away with something different. But one thing we can all come away with is that we do not lack anything because our God provides all of our needs according to his riches and glory. You know, when we're in the wilderness, we're aware of the promised land, aren't we? You know, we're in the wilderness, but we're going, but I want to be to the promised land. I'm aware of it, and sometimes it seems so far away and so distant. I like to take occasion, and we have a deck in our um, back of our house, and uh, we get, uh, we have just a beautiful panoramic view of all the hills over there. I don't even know where I live. I live in Eastville, so I don't know what hills those are. I haven't learned yet, over towards where Teresa lives. And uh, I guess Green River, but I see all that. We see all that. It's so beautiful. And I like to sit there sometimes, and I like to just imagine being in heaven, being in the promised land, because that's our final destination, isn't it? Is just closing my eyes and just drifting away in my imagination of the moment we walk through those pearly gates, the moment we just pass from here to there. It's just a thin veil. And then all of a sudden, we're going to be with Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? But in the process, we've got to enjoy the here and now. And that's the challenge when you're in the wilderness. Let's do a quick historical cap. Now, the, the wilderness experience of Israel is a living history. And it's part of God's story. Because the Israelites going into the wilderness was part of the story moving toward 
the great panoramic view of salvation through Jesus Christ. So we see a lot of typology in the wilderness and in what happened to them in terms of what God allowed to happen to the people of Israel. Um, I believe that we can identify with the times that the Israelites had. We can identify with the Old Testament. Can you identify with Abraham when he was called out? Can you identify? Can you identify with Ruth when she was called to leave something behind and to go on to an unknown future? There's many things that we can identify with. But we can also know that in all of our experiences, we have benefited through tough times, as Kim shared. 1 Corinthians 10, we know that we benefit through these tough times, and the reason they're in the scripture is it says, it tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 6, now these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our heart on evil things. God has allowed us to see, um, as it says in Hebrews, being surrounded with such a great cloud of witnesses. He allows the testimony of others, the testimony of your experience and my experience, and these experiences, they allow us to live life better and more fully when we take heed, when we listen to the warnings. So a unique part of our growth comes through lessons in the wilderness. A unique part of our growth comes through lessons in the wilderness. That's a unique part of our growth. So today, I just went through listening to the teachers that have been teaching, and I picked out eight things that I believe we can walk away with um, in our wilderness studies. And the first one is this, lesson number one. We learned about priorities this last year. We have learned about priorities, what's important to God. And we see that in Exodus chapter 3, and in also in chapter 13. Now, when the children of Israel left um, Egypt, they went just about two weeks out along the Mediterranean shore. And this was an international trade route, which was called the Way of the Philistines. And the Philistines were not exactly nice to play with people. In fact, the Philistines were ruthless. They did ruthless things to the enemy. And if God would have taken them through, straight through the Philistine way into the promised land, they would have probably ran back to Egypt. They would have been too afraid. They were not prepared to do the kind of battle that was needed to go straight into the promised land. So instead... The Lord um, took them on a 40-year journey uh, through the wilderness, which should have taken them two weeks. If they would have had a GPS, that may not have happened. But nonetheless, it was a trip of a lifetime. Now, what happens here, when Pharaoh didn't let the people go, um, they already began, when Pharaoh let the people go and they got into the desert and they were sitting there for about a year, they began questioning God right away. And uh, they didn't quite understand, and they were a little bit upset because here they were at Mount Sinai, and Moses kept going up to the mountain because Moses had his priorities right. Why was Moses going to the mountain? To spend time with God. And the children of Israel were down there going, wait a minute, what? Where are you going? You're supposed to be leading us. 
And the Lord left them there in Mount Sinai for almost a year so that he can begin growing them. And he had to flush some bad stuff out of them because they had gotten used to idol worship. They were surrounded by idol worship and they got used to it. And that's what they went back to when they started doubting. Lesson number two. This is a hard one. God is not in a hurry. How many have found that true to be about God? God is not in a hurry. The trouble is I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. God seems to take this, he has this knack of just taking all the time in the world. When I was pregnant with Nicole, she was three weeks late. And I remember every day felt like a year. Every day I was like, am I going to ever have this baby? I really thought I was going to be pregnant the rest of my life. And sometimes in our spirit realm, we're pregnant with things. And we want God to just deliver the baby. And he's like, no, it's not time yet. And we're like, please, please, I can't take another day of this. It's hot out. It's July. He's like, just be patient. Okay, okay. I I know I'm in labor. Go to the hospital. You're not in labor. Are you sure? I'll pay you to say I'm in labor. See, speed is what I think is important, but not God. Because God knows that it's more important that my heart is flowing with love, joy, peace, compassion, and justice than milk and honey. Right? He could have taken them straight to the promised land but they would not have been the people he wanted them to become if he hadn't taken them through the wilderness. And so that takes us to lesson number three. God cares most about what I'm learning and becoming. God cares most about what I'm learning and becoming. So we learned about priorities. We've learned God is not in a hurry And we've learned that God cares most about what I'm learning and becoming. Uh, I read the story of an American businessman who went to Switzerland, and he was in a small town, and he watched a clockmaker who was making fine cuckoo clocks, and he was painstakingly carving this cuckoo clock. And so the, um, you know, the busy, whizzy American businessman, noting the slow rate of progress, said to the clockmaker, my good man, you'll never make much money that way. And the clockmaker replied, sir, I'm not making money. I'm making cuckoo clocks. (laughs) You see, God's not in to making some fast microwave drive-through hamburger. He's interested in making people that have integrity, people that have his character. And that's a hard one. But I like knowing that he is more concerned about the depth of my life, not just a fast-paced production. Number four, some things have to die to enter the promised land. Oh, dun, da, da, dun, dun. How many have ever had to painfully lay something at the foot of the cross? Ah! If we live, if we breathe, we're going to have to do this. You know, think of Abraham and Isaac. The first time worship is mentioned is when God sent Abraham to lay down his son Isaac. It's the first time we ever see the word worship in Scripture. It's a laying down. 
And sometimes things have to die in order for us to enter those promised lands. There are things that we think we can't do without, right? I can't. And he's like, yes, you can. You can. When we allow ourselves full surrender to the Lord. Number five. Lesson number five. Attitudes are a big deal to God. Turn to your neighbor and say, attitudes are a big deal to God. Now, there was this little problem that the children of Israel constantly dealt with. And I know the reason it's in the scriptures because we have the same nature. It's called grumbling, which translated is complaining. Now, I think that it's not just grumbling. I think grumbling has a step pre. A precursor to grumbling is mumbling. So I said mumbling and grumbling go hand in hand, right? We start out with a mumble, right? You know, will you make me a cup of coffee? You know, honey, will you, right? You know, kids, you'll... Listen, having four daughters, one mumbler could ruin the whole bunch because one mumbler turns a whole bunch of grumblers, right? And, you know, I hear, you know, well, I want you to clean your rooms. Like, mom, 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 and then pretty soon it was like, why do we have to clean our rooms? So I always found if I could catch the mumbling before it became the grumbling. And I think that's a good part in us. If we can stop that mumbling the first minute, because see what grumbling really is, it's an indictment against God. Because when we're grumbling, what we're saying is, God, I don't think, and you fill in the blank. God, I don't think, you know, I don't think you're doing it right. I don't think you care about me. I don't think this is just. I don't think this is fair. I have a niece who I adore. Her and her husband pastor up in uh, Pismo Beach area. And she has two boys that are autistic. And one of them is, um, has kind of outgrown to the point he's still very autistic, but he's very intelligent. So that part of him has kind of helped balance out the autism. But the other little boy who's now nine is getting worse. And it is, they have exhausted doctors and nutritionists and There are days when he is so violent that he uh, has pushed her over, and it's to the point now where the schools are telling them that they cannot take him anymore. And I am so impressed with my niece's attitude. I have never heard her complain once, and I know how hard it is. And um, she'll write things on her Instagram, like just laying here today, helping my little guy find calm in his heart, because I know that God created him just the way he is, and I want him to know who he is. Over and over and over again, I've had calls where they're trying to get him out of the store, and they're asking, please pray so we can get him out of the store without him hurting himself. He is so violent. These are pastors. These are people that love God. They love this little guy. They're good parents. They believe in prayer. They fast. They pray. And I know that they're going to come through. 
But I'm so proud of the attitudes that they have taken. And I don't know how they do it. I honestly don't. I hope she writes a book because she just has this incredible ability to trust God in all of this. Now, that's not to say that we can't talk to God when things are unjust. In fact, he's the one we should go to. And David often grumbled a little bit. Oh, I'd say he mumbled. I don't think he really complained a lot in the sense that he indicted God. In fact, I think it's why he's called a man after God's own heart, because he had this ability to surrender to what he simply could not understand. David had this way. He could surrender in what he didn't understand. In fact, we see the story when he lost his first child out of a wedlock, out of the uh, adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. And it says that he, they were very concerned for David. They thought that he was going to um, die from sorrow. He wouldn't eat. He was depressed. The servants were concerned. And then the baby did die. And David did a very interesting thing. He got up. It says he washed his face. And he said, let's just go on with life. He says, I can't. He can't come to me, but someday I will go to him. See, that's absolute surrender in that he, he simply let go of what he couldn't understand and trusted God. When we take on a defiant posture towards God, we have traded humility for a sense of demanding accusations. When we take on that defiant, and I've been there. I have said things to God like, okay, well, let's just forget it. Just forget it. And the Lord will come and he'll say, excuse me, did you really mean that? No, I'm sorry, Lord. I didn't. It's, a, it's kind of a, an exercise of humility that takes place in our heart when we continue to come to the Lord and we continue to surrender things that are hard. And I think when we look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see a perfectly surrendered heart not grumbling, not complaining, speaking his case, Lord, Father in heaven, I don't want to go through this. If there's any other way, would you let this cup pass? So I think that the reason grumbling is so grievous to God is because he knows how much it hurts us from becoming the people he wants us to be. And in fact, if you look in 1 Corinthians Um, It actually talks about, there's three things that is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 10. When Paul talks about Israel's sin, he talks about idolatry. There's three sins. You can read it later, 1 Corinthians sin, idolatry. Adultery. Idolatry is to worship idols, and it can be anything. You can worship Barbie. You can worship the Barbie doll. You know, you can worship American Idol. Whatever you worship, you can worship your husband. You can worship your kids. And then adultery is to have relationship outside of marriage. You know, um, when you see in the book of Nehemiah when they're rebuilding, they've rebuilt the walls and they're going back into the city and they're told how to populate the city. I think like in Nehemiah 10, 11 there. It's interesting because the Lord tells them three things that they're to do to restore worship. It was really easy. And one of them was that they were not to allow their daughters to marry foreigners. And I think if we translate that into our modern day, 
because the parents made the decisions about marriage then, which I wish they did now, although we got good son-in-laws, I don't know. I, you know, anyway, um, (laughs) but I think we translate to the romantic relationships that God's saying to restore worship, we have to surrender all of our romantic aspirations and desires to God because anything outside of that is really an adulterous relationship towards the Lord when we don't put him first in everything. And, um, so that's what he was saying. He, he really was trying to produce in them this pure heartedness in all areas of their life. So I just, I just got this word picture that when they're in the wilderness, they had to stay in a few places more than they probably needed to because of things like mumbling and grumbling. So I would say, if you want to stay in the wilderness, get your go to jail card directly. What does it say? Do not pass go, right? Don't collect $200. You want to stay in the wilderness a little bit more? Mumble and grumble. You want to be in the wilderness? Mumble and grumble. Complain to God. Indict God, and he's going to let you stay in the wilderness a little bit longer. So just get a picture of that card in your head and go, I don't want to stay. I do not want to mumble and grumble. You know how to change mumbling and grumbling? Ah, attitude of gratitude. Just start by saying thank you when you wake up in the morning. Thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you that I'm not visiting my child in the hospital today. Thank you that I have groceries in my cupboards and I have food in my refrigerator and I have fresh water running through my faucets. Thank you that last night when I laid my head down, I had a bed and I had a door to lock. Thank you. Thank you for what I have. Attitude of gratitude can change your circumstances. If we will just allow ourselves to have that attitude. Okay, so let's back up and let's review each one of these that we've gone through. Number one is what? Priorities. What is our priority? Matthew 6.33. Seek what? First, the kingdom of God. Okay. Number three, God cares most about what I'm learning and becoming. Number four, some things have to. Number five, attitudes are a. Oh, we need to say that with conviction. Attitudes are a big deal to God. We don't want to mumble and we don't want to grumble because it gets us stuck. We don't want to get stuck. Okay, so we've gone through number five, number six. God provides one day at a time. Just turn to your neighbor and say, God provides. One day at a time. Remember that song, one day at a time, sweet Jesus. (laughs) Oh, sometimes that's so hard. So they were hungry. They're in the wilderness, and God sends them quail, and he sends them manna, which were kind of like Kellogg's Frosted Flakes, but they had all the nutrients they needed because they lasted 40 years. And I was thinking about that. If I'm a woman or a man that cooks, there's just certain things I like to cook. I like to cook things that I like to cook. And I think after a while, I'd be a little bit bummed uh, because I don't particularly like quail. But I'd have to learn how to make quail and manna, banana, 
Pastor Rick's on a really strict diet. Um, he's just done a lot of study on how to help trigger off the nerves again. And he's, he approaches everything like so research, you know. And he found out there are certain foods that he could eat and not eat that will help him uh, have quicker recovery time with his, his nerves. So he really can't eat any wheats or anything. So I've had to learn how to cook with coconut flour. I've never cooked with coconut flour. Um, I would prefer to cook with what I'm used to, my King Arthur whole wheat flour or my King Arthur bread flour, whatever it is. And I can't. I've had to learn how to cook with coconut flour. And it kind of bugs me. And I can imagine they kind of were bugged. They didn't get to have lamb, you know. They got manna and they got quail. But... That's what God provided for them. One pastor writes this. God invites us to pray for our daily bread. Any provision beyond that is at our own considerable risk. Think about that. God invites us to pray for our daily bread. Any provision beyond that is at our considerable risk. How many knows that wealth can kill? (laughs) Wealth can absolutely kill. So I want you to ask yourself two questions. Just between you and God. Can I trust God for one day? Can I trust God for one minute? Can I trust him for one day? And if God has given provision for today, do I need to worry about tomorrow? No. Right? Those are good questions. Number seven, his presence has always been and will always be enough. That's lesson number seven. His presence has always been and will always be enough. In Exodus chapter 17, the Israelites were testing God. And they said, is the Lord among us or not? See, God wasn't giving them what they wanted. They took sight of the fact that he was giving them a cloud by day and fire by night that he was providing quail and manna. They wanted more. They wanted to head out to the promised land and get some of that milk and honey, and they wanted to get really comfortable. But God knew that comfort was not going to produce the qualities that he knew they needed to have. And remember, um, you know, they... Moses is up in the mountain. He's praying. He's getting the Ten Commandments. He's hearing from God. He's wrestling with God. So they decide they're just going to go back to their comfort zone. And we talked about it earlier. They're going to build idols. So they get all the people together and they convince Aaron and they decide they're going to make these gods out of gold. And uh, that way we can keep those gods in a box right where we want them. How many knows that it's more comfortable to have control? All you moms, if you're a mom, you are a control freak. I guarantee it. (laughs) My daughter, Nicole, the kids come in the house. She has two things. Wash your hands, take off your shoes. Wash your hands. They walk in my house saying that to themselves. Wash your hands, take off your shoes. (laughs) She doesn't want germs, right? (laughs) I always laugh about that. Because you know what kids do with their hands when you're not looking. There's no way. They wanted their gods in a box because they didn't like this God because he wasn't predictable. This God, the God of the heavens, that was giving them the cloud by day and the fire by night, 
They wanted a God in a box that they could say what they wanted and didn't want, when they wanted to worship, when they didn't want to worship. So I would say, go to, go to jail card number two is choose comfort over God's presence. If you want to stay in the wilderness a little bit longer, choose comfort over God's presence. You say, well, that might be easy for you to say. You're a pastor, and you get to pray all day, and you get to read the Bible all day, and that's all you do is study, and you get to always be reading commentaries. Ah. Yeah. (laughs) In his presence is fullness of joy, Psalm 16. How do you experience the presence of God? You sit down and you begin a conversation. You listen and you learn. You speak and you learn and you do what you hear. It's not easy practicing the presence of God. Um, Brother Andrew has a book out called Practicing the Presence of a God. And in fact, him and a couple contemporaries decided that they would do like a 30-day challenge, and they would just, every, I think it was every hour, they would stop, and they would consciously make themselves aware of God's presence. Whatever it takes for you, reading your Bible is crucial to experiencing God's presence, Um, listening to worship music, worshiping, not just listening, writing your own songs of praise to God. Spend time in his presence. Turn off the TV. That's comfortable. It's easy to sit down and watch the news. It's easy to sit down and watch. I love watching medical shows. I watched, I just watched, uh, um, what do they call when somebody passes away and they do that on their, an autopsy. I watched a whole, I just think it's so interesting. I told Rick the other day, will you buy me one of those puzzles where I can take all the, you know, stuff out of the body, like kids get the puzzle, you know, I want to see these <laughs> I'm just curious. I love to watch surgeries. I just watched a C-section last night. Sometimes I think I watch it because it's drama that I don't have to clean up. (laughs) It kind of feels good. I can turn off the TV and leave it to those doctors, right? Man, they just did a brain surgery. Brain surgeries are really great to watch, especially when they keep them awake. Um, You know, whatever. Sometimes I have to go, I can't do that. I can't, you know... I have to spend time with God. We need to spend time in his presence. My grandkids are a great comfort to me. But they can also be a distraction, and sometimes I have to choose something else, and that's spending time with the Lord. And you know what? It's not a have to. It's a get to. I get to be with Jesus, and that's what he wants. He wants us to want him. Look at what he did from the beginning of creation through the salvation, through Jesus Christ, and through eternity, what's it all about? It's about him wanting to be with us. What did he do? He created everything, and every day, what did he do? He met with Adam and Eve in the cool of the night. Why? He wanted relationship with them. Why did he send his only son to the cross? Because he wanted relationship with us. Why did he create eternity? He wants to spend eternity with us. So we need to get out of our comfort zone and into his presence. And number eight, 
Lesson number eight. I just put this. Faith rules, fear drools. You can tell I have grandkids, huh? They're usually saying girls rule, boys drool, or whatever, you know. In Numbers 13, we see the story of the Israelites. Now, they're going to go look at Cana, and they are going to um, send some spies in. So they send 12 spies. And 10 of them come back and say, oh, my goodness, we are not going to go there. Those, that place has giants. And it's very interesting because in verses 30 through 33, It says this, it said, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, right? Listen, when we look through our own eyes, we only see a little bit and not God's perspective. And when we look through God's eyes, we see God's perspective, I loved what Corey Tinboon wrote. She says, faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. One more time. Faith sees the invisible, believes the unbelievable, and receives the impossible. When we have faith, we can move mountains. And if we don't have faith, we get to stay in the wilderness a little bit longer. So go to jail card number three. Allow my natural perspective to keep me from entering divine promises. Allow my natural perspective to keep me from entering divine promises. See, when we allow our perspective, this is what the doctors say. This is what they say. Then we don't see what God sees, and we won't allow the divine. When um, pastor was sick, and other times I can tell you testimonies, I remember when our daughter Nicole was, I uh, had had the concussion, and she was in the hospital, and they were getting ready to do a CAT scan. She was completely incoherent. Little thing had been throwing up for like two days. She had fallen out of bed, and they had told us, you know, it looked really bad, and, uh, you know, taking your little three-year-old and putting him in one of those cribs with the plastic and all the, they were coming in to put an IV and just something in me. I just had just gone through that whole thing with Cindy and the miraculous healing of arthritis. And we were in the same hospital on the same floor, not that much longer. And I was just like, oh, I just can't do this again. And the nurse came in to give her an IV. And I said, you know what? Just, just wait, just, just wait. You know, I just, you know, She goes, well, I have to go talk to the doctor. And I walked over to the window, and I looked out the window, and I said, Lord, this is so hard for me. I've seen you do miracles. And here my little girl is laying there. She can't even keep her eyes open. She was so, her, just from the the concussion, she was just coming in and out, and she was throwing up. And I I just prayed. I said, Lord, please, please heal her. I just asked for a miracle. I didn't want to look with my own eyes. And when I turned around, she looked up at me, and I walked over, and you could tell. She quit throwing up. She said, Mom, I'm hungry. The nurse came in to put the IV in again. I said, something's happened. I believe she's had a miracle, and they already thought I was crazy. And I said, please bring her something to eat. And she goes, okay. So she brought her a turkey sandwich, and then she brought her another turkey sandwich. 
And first they started with Jello, then the turkey sandwich. And she didn't throw up. She was completely fine. So the doctor came in about 15 minutes later, and she said to the nurse, what happened to the child that I just admitted? Where is that child? And the nurse said, that is the child. No, that is not the child. You have it all mixed up. She walked out of the room, and I could hear her shuffling. Of course, she saw what she was admitting to the hospital. And uh, Nicole was healed, and we went home the next day because they kept her just for more observation. Not only was she healed, the family in the bed next to us saw what happened, and their little boy had a tumor on his hip, and um, they asked us what happened, and we told them. We led them to Christ and prayed for that little boy, and he was healed as well. So, you know, don't look at the natural, guys. Oh, I know it's so easy to just look at what we And the Lord wants us to look at what he knows, not at what we know. Because we can move mountains when we trust God. And Caleb went in there, and those men went into the promised land, and they conquered the enemy because they had great faith. I found this from a uh, professor from the United Theological Seminary. He writes this great about just doing the impossible. He said, the world's a better place because Michelangelo did not say, I don't do ceilings. The world's a better place because a German monk, Martin Luther, didn't say, I don't do doors. The world's a better place because Moses didn't say, I don't do pharaohs or mass migrations. The world's a better place because Noah didn't say, I don't do arcs or animals. The world's a better place because Rahab didn't say, I don't do enemy spies. The world's a better place because Ruth didn't say, I don't do mother-in-laws. The world's a better place because Mary didn't say, I don't do virgin births. The world's a better place because Paul didn't say, I don't do prisons and correspondence. The world's a better place because Mary Magdalene didn't say, I don't do feet. The world's a better place because Jesus didn't say, I don't do crosses. And the world will be a better place only if you and I don't say, I don't do dot, dot, dot. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we come to you today. We're vessels, Lord, that are just, we just want to be putty in your hands. We want to be used by you, God. We want you to use us. We want you, Father, to, oh, just make us willing. And sometimes we do feel like we're trudging. We feel like it's one step at a time. Lord, all of us have had, that have kids, we've had kids that have tested us to the very brink of our insanity or non-insanity. And Lord, we've had days when we're so tired that we didn't feel like we could get out of bed. But you give us the strength. And then we face situations and difficulties and problems that you give us answers and resolve. Lord, we want to live above the mundane, and we want to be vessels of honor and women who do supernatural things. Lord, we know Corey Tinboon didn't start out being the Corey Tinboon that we know. Our Mother Teresa didn't start out being the Mother Teresa that we read about. Lord, they were willing women that were just available to you and surrender to your purposes and what they didn't understand they were willing to let go and to trust you lord i pray a blessing over every family represented here every woman every spouse every child every grandchild lord
every great-grandchild, Lord. We pray that you'll help and send grace and mercy where it's needed, Lord. And you'll give us nudges where it's needed. And that, Lord, this summer we can truly be women that connect, that we grow and we influence others, Lord. And we ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Now, ladies, as you're just going to go over your homework and you have time to pray, um, I just encourage you, don't let this be the last time you see this person until September, okay? Look them in the eye. Get a phone number. Meet for coffee. Connect. Bring a neighbor along. Let the glory of God just rub off on your neighbors and family and friends. And let's do life together, okay? Next Tuesday, 9.30 to 10.30 in here. You need prayer breakthroughs. You pray. You want to pray for others. Be here. Okay, and we'll see you. God bless you.